we've had um, always a history of human bias. And that's actually a really important part of the equality machine where we should not be measuring um, automation against some kind of ideal perfection, um, you know, having some system that is unbiased, but rather we should always be asking about comparative advantage. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, my guest is law professor, author, and distinguished speaker, Orly LaBelle, who recently published her latest of three books, The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter and More Inclusive Future. In this episode, we explore the thread that weaves through Orly's work, which often emphasizes the way that economic markets, technology, and the human condition interact. Specifically, we take a deep dive into the limitations and future of intellectual property and monopolies, the way in which cynicism and unrealistic standards hold us back from seeing and implementing humanistic technological solutions, and the way in which technology could bring more equality to our societies. So without further ado, everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Orly LaBelle. So I'm going to go ahead and pick up on the topic then. I'm going to start with what we were just talking about before we started recording, which was that all of your books kind of go together. So I would love to know maybe what story you're trying to tell with those three books that ties them together with that single thread. Yeah, all the books are about how we shape markets and shape our culture and our society through um, decisions that we, we make collectively, individually, uh, our um, social norms and ethics, but also policy and how we can actually make our markets better. And and so how's the latest book, Equality Machine, planned to this? Because it feels like that has a much more technology-driven focus. Right. So the Equality Machine is about technology and our digital future. Um, I will say that Talent Wants to Be Free, my first book, and You Don't Own Me, my second book, uh, do have a technology tilt in the sense that they are about intellectual property, innovation policy, uh, market competition, um, competitiveness in general about you know who invents and who owns innovation. Uh, but uh, The Equality Machine, my new book, is definitely the most technology oriented uh, in that I look at the current developments in um, automation, the progress that we've made, been making with artificial intelligence, uh, with data collection and data mining. And uh, I suggest that our conversations, the conversations we've been having as a public, as a community, in the media, and also uh, by government and kind of what we see in policy have been pretty um, flat and um, skewed in, in a lot of ways. So um, if you look at kind of the trajectory and the public perception of uh, where we're going with technology, there has been recently a very alarmist um, and take on where we are and where we're going. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the book, I show that we need to make sense of what we really fear, um, what you know, what is concerning, what are the risks, but we also very much need to uh, emphasize the potential and the opportunities that are coming with automation and that a lot of times that's missed in the public part conversation that we were having. Yeah, it seems like you're kind of saying that we're living between two polar extremes here, especially in terms of like policy and culture, which is one, it's flat and we do basically nothing. It's kind of like an impotent approach to policy. And then the other side is pure panic. The AI is going to destroy us. Social media is destroying our brains. 
is this kind of uh, capricious and like very extreme approach to technology kind of what you're uh, rallying against here a bit? I think that's exactly right, but they're connected. So hmm. there is that impotence uh, where um, we see government and policy makers uh, kind of not understanding what's going on and then saying, you know, we, we can't do anything. So uh, very recently, I actually critiqued a, a long um, Federal Trade Commission report that was actually commissioned by Congress. Congress asked uh, the FTC to look at how we can use AI to battle uh, online harms. And you see this report that is uh, nearly 90 pages long uh, saying, oh, there's all these tools, there's, you know, AI is happening, industry is adopting it. But then the conclusion is, but it's too rudimentary. We don't know enough. It can cause harm. There's AI bias. We all know about AI bias. So uh, how about we do nothing, Congress? And that's the recommendation. And then you see also the reports that are even worse in the kind of the press releases that are um, telling the public about the report. They just uh, kind of go to, they go all the way. I actually show this in, in my writing that um, they, they in fact, uh, allude to kind of Hollywood images of the AI mm. um, rising and killing its programmer and kind of explaining why uh, the FTC said do nothing. And so those two polar opposites of the alarmist and then the kind of non-intervention, I actually argue they're very much uh, connected and interrelated in the sense that we... Um, are letting kind of uh, people, a very, very uh, small set of people, um, kind of the insiders shape the direction of technology and everybody kind of on the outside are critics, are um, talking about the, the wrongs, about the fails um, and not really having skin in the game. And, and really the book, The Equality Machine is all about how we all need to have skin in the game because we all need to shape our future and have you know um the the vocabulary the the common sense the kind of the, the ability to challenge conventional wisdom about where we're at where we're going what are the advantages what are really the risks of um different uh you know systems that are being adopted um, and only then are we actually going to have this like rich conversation of, you know, there's certain things that, you know, uh, are are better than others. Uh, you know, there's certain technologies that are safer, that are um, that are more accurate, that are more fair and others, you know, maybe we should, you know, opt out of or or prohibit or ban. But we can't have this kind of very flattened idea of like. Oh, we we're we're fearing everything. It's all biased, um, and we shouldn't use it. And then and then you know, the train has left the station, as mm. you know very well. Like <laughs> it's happening anyway. So you know, there's that paradox, exactly like you described, kind of that paradox of the the two polars of like there's so much going on, but we fear it. And then you know, there's a a, a small set of uh, people and a very small set of places of of uh, um, you know, companies and, and actually regions that are shaping our future. Yeah. And how do we, I guess, uh, open up the doors to those kind of walled gardens, uh, so to speak, because when I think about the technological landscape as it exists right now, you know, we, I think was the book, the big five or the big four or whatever. And it was talking about Facebook, right. Google, Apple, you know, you have Twitter, and these companies are dominant. They're very much, uh, you know, there's there's a handful of them, yes, but they're basically monopolies on the space. And how do we take those important decisions that they're making with these billion dollar, uh, you know, revenue accounts and spread them out to the masses so that there there is more ability for other people to join the conversation? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, those are really tough questions. Uh, and, you know, competition policy is something that is a frontier right now, antitrust mm -hmm. law, kind of rethinking what makes 
um, these companies, this, these big five, um, these category kings as kind of this puzzle that has uh, been uh, bubbling with uh, economists and you know people like me who study um, platforms, online platforms, whether it's social media or search engines or, um, you know, uh, apps like uh, writing apps or, you know, kind of sharing economy gig apps. Um, what makes it, it just turns out that, you know, that in on each category, uh, these companies reach a certain, um, maybe not monopoly, but, um, you know, uh, at least a very dominant uh, you know, place in the space. Um, and I think there are a lot that we can do. There's, there is a lot that we can do. So um, I mentioned my first book, Talent Wants to be Free. Uh, it's actually all about how we need much more competition and um, labor mobility, job mobility uh, in um, in between jobs. And, and we, you know, there are, there is a role for policy there. So for example, um, we should not allow kind of these draconian uh, do not hire, do not poach, um, non-competes, um, over-defining what proprietary information is, what uh, trade secrecy is, uh, innovation assignments that, you know, a lot of, probably a lot of the listeners know about, you know, like signing away pre-innovation, you know, pre-ever conceptualizing new ideas, signing away so much of your knowledge. So this is kind of like the classic kind of uh, Facebook, Zuckerberg starts, you know, Facebook uh, and uh, the Winkle bosses want uh, his um, his platform because he had kind of informally worked for them. Um, actually, my second book, You Don't Own Me, is also about these kinds of dynamics with over collusive um, employment contracts. So that's a role for policy, but um, there's a lot more. So uh, in the quality machine, I, I look at public options. So um, not having, so so it, it goes back to the question that we talked about before of like, if, if we're um, not really um, nudging, pushing, um, training more people to, uh, have the capacities to um, be in the game, to to be part of the conversation, then um, these technologies are very concentrated, unused uh, in in kind of very narrow ways. But um, we can spread, you know. So uh, we we need to scale successes, and we need to scale um, the kind of AI for good that is really. Each chapter in the equality machine is pointing to. So I go to examples in um, health and advancements in um, hiring and uh, software for pay equity and um, online, you know, content moderation that we mentioned before um, and uh, search engines and digital personal assistants. Um, the more people that are kind of have a voice of saying like, this is what we actually want. This is, you know, this can be better. Um, we don't want to accept the defaults that are given to us by, by Google or Amazon. Um, we want something that is more open source. We want um, something that has, you know, many more choices, you know, we will be seeing, and, and we are seeing, uh, you know, more options and and kind of a, a more uh, competitive and um, and broader market in in a lot of those contexts. But yeah, it's, it's something that we're kind of constantly uh, battling against of having you know too much concentration of power and and understanding what shapes that. So, do you think those IP laws are going to be something that changes in the near future, or, or are going to have to change? Maybe as we move towards that decentralized, open source future, if we're going to bring people into the conversation and maybe address some of these issues. Yeah, I think already uh, there there's a a real uh, reason and role for rethinking a lot of our intellectual property laws, um, even in 
you know, the, the lower tech um, context, uh, you know, there's, I think, years of research uh, that shows that we've been overexpanding and um, overly entrenching knowledge and ideas um, through kind of policing, the, the remixing and the policing, the, the uses of um, so much valuable, you know, human progress. Um, and I can tell this story on, you know, the patent front and the copyright front and trade secrecy, which is an area that I've uh, done a lot of research um, and and also trademark. There's a lot of empirical research that we've just been kind of overly using. It's it's like uh, the tragedy of the anti-commons, really kind of overly using the, the registration of marks and the um, the the sticks and the swords of um you know the patent system to um to really kind of get rid of uh entrepreneurs to uh slow down you know startups um and you know the people that have more more of the resources and kind of the longevity and the stamina to yeah, even bring really frivolous cases um, that, that scare investors, that scare off, um, you know, collaborators um, will use those sticks. So, so again, I can tell this story even without now, you know, we're, we're going to get to this um, with our, our leaps, the leaps that we're making in technology. Um, but certainly now um, when, when we do have, um, in every single field, uh, you know, automation that is becoming so good, and we need to talk about how good this is, you know, the equality machine is all about, like, we need to talk about how good, um, you know, a lot of this uh, technology is getting. Um, I think, again, the um, Singularity U is, is really kind of exceptional, and, and actually, you're talking about this, um, but the public is, you know, uh, the public debates, the kind of mainstream debates that I've researched are more about like how bad it is, <laughs> or like, you know, how, how um, you know, unready it is, or, you know, then making the leap about, you know, how it's good in a scary way. So there's kind of that paradox too. But um, now that we have um, automated systems that can um, create music that can um, you know, create art, uh, novels that can um, solve all sorts of problems. We really need to rethink, you know, the, that idea behind intellectual property of um, incentivizing a single individual or corporation in you know, investing in. Um, and research and development, and then get, getting a monopoly. You know, the, the patent system is really a monopoly. The copyright system is a monopoly. It's a temporary monopoly um, of you know exclusivity over uh, a body of information and knowledge uh, for what is supposed to be a limited period, but has been extended. Definitely with copyright, it's uh, it's really not a limited period um, because it goes uh, over a lifetime uh, from a human perspective. So it really is a moment that is ripe for rethinking all of these systems of, you know, how does innovation happen? What are our human incentives? Um, what are our collective incentives to um, invent, to create, and, you know, how technology is reshaping that? Yeah, I love that because I, I don't think really until you started talking about this that I've made that connection between ip law as a form i don't want to say of oppression but like it doesn't provide equality because it keeps people from being able to express themselves to start businesses to try to build a life for themselves outside of you know one of these monopolistic companies for example um are there other ways that you see IP law may be holding people back beyond the, the economics of, of things? Is there an equality aspect to IP that we haven't talked about here? Well, I mean, when you look statistically about who gets um, patents uh, registered to their names um, and, and who then profits from it, 
Uh, first of all, there's an inequality here between individuals, kind of the standalone image of the individual creator versus the big corporations. And so that's, you know, part of that kind of, if, if the market is less competitive, then we're going to see, um, even when an individual is the inventor, the assignment goes to um, big corporations. Um, but there's also a, an inequality in terms of gender and race and uh, in patenting and um, in other forms of intellectual property. Um, and that too, um, has it's, I mean, there's multiple sources to these problems. So I talk in the equality machine um, about the um, ability to find out about where you're valued, where your talent is most valued and where you're going to be um, that your human capital is going to be uh, utilized in the best play, the best way. And again, I think technology really helps with that. So um, for years, uh, the talent market has been um, not only unequal, you know, and kind of um, valuing and, you know, having these biases um, and disvaluing certain profiles, certain demographics. Um, but it's also been um, very concentrated um, in uh, kind of bringing people uh, through word of mouth, not really um, allowing a lot of job hopping for uh, certain people who kind of don't know about other jobs, who maybe fear uh, a breach of a non-compete. Um, and digital platforms are changing this. So um, we, you know, we're also connected now with um, information about jobs that are really, that's really global. So, you know, kind of think about LinkedIn, LinkedIn 3.0, you know, like, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, platforms that let you know your worth. Uh, so um, one of the puzzles has been, why don't, why, why doesn't the market correct for um, pay gaps for people? And, and again, uh, you know, people don't really know their worth. There's, you know, there's this kind of information asymmetry um, that's always existed between um, talent and uh, the, the companies that hire them. Um, and we've had kind of these social norms that are, um, infused with a taboo about talking about your salary your your compensation schemes, um, including your kind of uh, what are you awarded for, uh, whether you're awarded when you uh, invent something within a company, when you, when you have a patent to your name. Um, and again, so much of this is changing with, um, it's kind of an endogenous uh, cycle where you see um, the platforms uh, kind of crowdsourcing information. There's, you know, actual apps that are called Know Your Worth and you can kind of find out if you're underpaid. Um, and then we also are changing our norms because of that. And we're kind of more willing to uh, job hop, to um, demand more. We saw this, you know, I guess in the extreme with the great resignation and um, it's really the great reshuffling of people really, understanding what they value or think rethinking what they value in terms of their um, careers and their professional development. Um, COVID has also accelerated our um, abilities to work remotely, to telecommute, you know, to work globally, to travel the world while we're working. So all of this is, again, enabled by technology, but it's also part of our norms. You know, um, what do we value and how do we share information um, and, and how do we create? Um, I'll say one more thing about this is that, um, again, we kind of have differences in social norms on um, whether we want to patent and um, to contain, to, um, Kind of draw circles that like walls um, on the data that we collect, the the information, the the uh, innovation that we have, um, versus sharing. And uh, you know, as you know, there's like different communities that are much more about sharing. And so um, this is, you know, we see this in research institutions. You know, about the norms of 
like you you have choices where you can present an a leap in um like an algorithm that you've been working on um you you can present it in a scholarly setting or at a conference um or you can you know hide it you can deem it proprietary you can uh you know try to patent it if it's patentable um and you know i think that we have um we have different social norms um in different communities and different even in different countries different demographics um so there is some evidence that women for example have this kind of other looking um you know kind of more altruistic wanting to collaborate more and maybe like uh think about whatever innovation is there um they're they're happy to share it more freely and not demand not be the kind of homo economicus of like I'll just share it if you, you know, sign an NDA and um and pay me, you know, uh, some some royalties for it. Um yeah, there's lots of things that are kind of interesting in in these um corporate cultures and, you know, other cultures that of institutions and, you know, how how sharing happens. But all of this I think again is, you know, being challenged by our the 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 um speed of um technological innovation and how um technology is enabling so many more leaps um in in creativity and invented inventions so you were talking there about i feel like incentives maybe being one of the big issues behind where technology is going do you do you feel like that's a big part of what's at play here is that these economic incentives are are making people feel like they have to not share this information to make money off of it so that they're hyper competitive no i i don't think i would um describe it that way i think mm -hmm. um you know the it's good to have economic incentives um you know it's the the for-profit motivation is definitely a you know a good motivation to have in the mix and you know in competitive industries and markets um it's more that um you know it's kind of this push and pull where um you know rationally of course if if you have a a profit motivation you should be actually hiring the best talent and you should look at you know for the overlooked um talent to include um we've had um always a history of human bias and that's actually a really important part of the equality machine where you know we talk so much about algorithmic bias um there's you know all these best selling books that are called automating inequality um uh algorithmic bias uh the new jim code kind of conveying that um algorithms um are you know have racial and gender bias um the you know books that are called uh weapons of math destruction that again kind of describe to us all the the biases and inaccuracies and uh plus kind of pair that with uh this idea of surveillance capitalism that you know data is extracted and and used in harmful ways and the equality machine is not denying that there are uh are you know risks of algorithmic bias um there have been uh definitely fails and there's you know bad ways to design an algorithm to just replicate and amplify you know past wrongs or existing um inequities in our society um but first of all the you know the the and a very important point that we need to kind of keep with us um in every discussion when we're looking at systems of uh let's say um bot radiologists you know automating um x-ray screenings or um uh identifying breast cancer with mammograms or um if we're automating the process of hiring and promotion and and pay and um and looking at you know uh who's evaluating different talent um for different purposes or you know for like for for education for um credit and loans 
Um, with all of these processes, um, you know, it's so important to remember that we're, you know, we're not, or we should not be measuring um, automation against some kind of ideal perfection, um, you know, having um, some system that is unbiased, um, but rather we should always be asking about comparative advantage. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've had disparities and biases and um, gender and race discrimination in our um, markets, in our uh, employment settings for forever, for, you know, for, for you know, when I, whenever uh, human history uh, really started. And um, we, as, as someone, so, you know, I here at University of San Diego, I'm the director of the um, Center for Employment and Labor Policy, and uh, I um, oversee all the employment um, law and policy programs and, and also serve as an expert witness in employment discrimination cases. Um, you know, it's it's so frustrating to see um, companies that try to uh, introduce diversity, that try to uh, kind of hold this idea of equality, but um, inevitably we we all hold biases as humans. Uh, so when we talk about the black box of algorithms, you know, I I ask in the equality machine, you know, which is better, the black box of humans, you know, our tiny brains that are, you know, also algorithms um, versus uh, when we, you know, we have some check on a system we introduce um, and like resume parsing or whatever it is. Um, and we can look at the outcomes, we can look, we can improve it. Um, we, you know, can have it learn uh, from past mistakes and, and we have kind of a digital uh, paper trail that um, keeps track of, you know, whether we're doing better on diversity, on equality, on accuracy, on safety, on all the, you know, the norms and, and values that we want to hold close. Um, so, so always kind of keeping that question of comparative advantage, um, remembering that, you know, we always need to decide in some way. We, we you know, there's no kind of decision-free world. There's no kind of status quo that is free from problems um and that there's a cost when when we're not introducing into automation into some systems let's say uh you know one of the things that really frustrates me um with some reports when uh you look at um for example i mentioned um radiology and um you know, new systems that can um, screen for for different diseases, for different um, cancers. Um, you'll see a report saying, "Oh, there, you know, there's uh, it's only like seventy percent um, accurate," and so you know we shouldn't use it until it's a hundred percent accurate. So we, we're holding this double standard for um, humans and machines. Um, and also, you know, even when it's compared to uh, human radiologists, you see these reports of like, well, when we take two of the most expert human radiologists, they are as good or maybe they out slightly outperform this new system that's, uh, you know, an automated system. So the question that we need to ask from an equality perspective is, um, you know, is it realistic that most people have, you know, access to two radi radiologists uh, or two expert radiologists, and and of course the answer is no. So um, again, from a kind of equality perspective, um, thinking about the potential of digital technology, we need to ask a the comparative advantage question and and b the kind of realistic question of costs and ability to scale uh systems to improve systems to have access to systems um around the world you know globally uh, you know improving um healthcare and digital literacy and um participation in our you know in, in our markets and our economic systems so all of these questions are very near to and dear to my heart. And, and that's kind of what I try to uh, work through in, in the book. Yeah. So do you feel like this uh, cynicism that comes at technology that kind of 
undermines the fact that it's not perfect and that, you know, it has some sort of bias. Um, and, and in a sense, maybe even like the cult, the way the culture wars and the, the politicization of all this plays into it. So do you think that that's what kind of what's core here is rather than seeing the bright side, you know, as you talk about of what could happen, you know, this could be uh, medical care for somebody who couldn't afford it at all. And 70% is better than nothing. You know, if that person can get access, like, are we losing our, our sight of all of these fantastic routes that we could go to because we want to criticize that technology is not perfect and that it has these flaws being completely blind to the fact that if we use it, we might open the door for lots of uh, treatment for people or lots of help for people that it just currently doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I think there's a cynicism and there's kind of these cognitive fails. And uh, so, you know, as, um, as from a behavioral uh, researcher standpoint, we would call it like a status quo bias um, mm -hmm. and loss aversion where like losses loom larger than gains when, you know, we're, we're thinking about change. Um, so that is in play, uh, I think, when we're thinking about introducing new systems and, and new processes. Um, there's also very much, and maybe this is the cynicism um, kind of in, in its focus, uh, there's very much a mindset of, um, I think it's a very individualistic and um, mm -hmm. probably mostly or more American than uh even in other countries, this idea of um, like anti-surveillance, anti-sharing of your individual information. So I show in the equality machine that oftentimes we, we have this um, privileging of privacy in ways that are really harmful for the common good. Mm. Um, so again, not that privacy is not important, not that, you know, we shouldn't value uh, certain instances of privacy, but we have to have a much richer understanding of how privacy over the years has served to exclude, to cover up, you know, uh, uh, wrongdoings, uh, of, you know, by the powerful uh, against, you know, people with that are more vulnerable. So this assumption that, um, that automation and that data collection is going to harm um, in patterned ways the more vulnerable is simply not true. I show this yeah. in, at every step of the book that um, oftentimes it's really the people at the edge of data, the the people who don't have access that are really being harmed by by not being um, you know included and counted and we should count what matters. Um, so all of it is kind of this mindset of, um, you know, if, if we understand that we can use technology as a force for good, then we have a, you know, much better chance to, you know, actually, uh, you know, carve the path forward in, mm -hmm. in uh, very productive and brighter ways, as you, know, you alluded to, it's uh, the subtitle of the book, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future. Um, you know, paradoxically, when we're just kind of in this mindset of criticizing and uh, being fearful, as we mentioned before, you know, the the technology is going to be, um, you know, it's going to be used, but it's going to be used in ways that um, most of us don't have a say in and, you know, don't understand. Yeah, you spoke there a little bit about the difference between, you know, the American way and maybe European uh, way, for instance. And it makes me think one of my first interviews with was a woman named Jenny Kleeman, and she wrote a book called Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. And she was uh, concerned about artificial wombs and, and the way automation was affecting women because she saw it, I believe, and you know, I don't want to speak for her, but it, it seemed like she strongly believed it would devalue women. But I believe when I was reading your book that you actually think maybe the opposite, that it might free women from this idea of women's work and kind of open up the landscape for them. Is that fair? And, and could you speak on that a bit? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack in your question because I can talk also about um, a lot of um, cultural and um, 
kind of global differences. So I, I do actually um, look in the book uh, to um, understand why Japan has um, has been so much of a leader in robotics and automation and and kind of their post-war culture. So a lot of it is kind of cultural histories of how do we understand um, human machine in relationships um, mm. and how uh, you know we we can embrace rather than um, fear you know some of these developments. So I look to Korea and Japan um, and Europe, but um, and and Europe is a whole other story. You know I can I can talk about, but um, on on your specific question and and this you know is is a a very interesting, you know, set of questions about um, our uh, biological differences um, from from a gender perspective, um, from you know, sex. Uh, I, as you've seen in the book, I have a whole chapter about sex robots, and you know, what do we think about sex war robots, and how uh, we think we know what we think about sex robots until we, you know, actually try uh, or, or engage with um, these uh, you know, uh, accelerating developments um, and sex tech in general. Um, and then um, specifically about reproductive um, technology. So I, I think you're absolutely right that um, my stance is that any technology that frees us to reimagine ourselves um, separate from the biological constraints that we've been born with is uh, an engine for equality. It's mm -hmm. it is part of an equality machine uh, in the sense that you know we've been so um, indoctrinated. You know whether it's you know nature or nurture. You know that we we have again kind of this very stagnant very sticky um divide in in our society of um the role of mothers and um of course we see this um in very very alarming um and really tragic ways right now in the united states of you know uh wanting to control women's bodies um uh wanting to limit reproductive rights and choice um if we leverage technology to kind of again give us the the liberties the freedoms um to to have more options to have more choices i think that's you know it's scary in some ways that you know not denying that it can be misused and abused and there's a lot of ethics that you know, ethical questions that we need to grapple with. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating conversation, but that's what we need to be doing. We need to, you know, to, to be reimagining and to be, um, again, with that kind of idea of skin in the game, uh, understanding what the right boundaries are and not just saying, you know, like, oh, I don't want to think about that. That's too much. Uh, you know, artificial womb is, uh, is too either sci-fi or kind of, um categorically unethical in some way mm -hmm. we really need to say much more to um you know understand what 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 do we um what can we envision what do we um have in, as part of our humanity that um will allow versus um constrain us you know in in uh moving forward with some of these options would it be fair to say you think we need to stare into the abyss a bit more so that we can find the gold that's hidden there? Because that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from this is that we're, we're so afraid of looking into the darkness to find the good that we don't find the good and we only see darkness. I love that. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I love that framing. And I think that that's always true, right? Like uh, it's uh, uh, I think it's part of our humanity to mm live an examined life and live an examine, you know, like be part of a, a, a collective that, you know, looks at what we are, who we are, you know, really asks um, what we want. Mm -hmm. And so 
my argument um, throughout is that we've always had a lot of things that we value. Uh, you know, you asked me before if it's like money that corrupts, if it's, uh, you know, uh, individual incentives and pro for profit motives that corrupt. And I said, yeah, look, we have we have a lot of different um, competing values and competing um, wants and desires in our society. And, and that's a good thing. You know, that's part of our, you know, a democratic free society that we value community and we value individualism. We value privacy, um, but we value safety. And, uh, you know, you, you see some of these tensions. I talk about them in the context of um, uh, COVID, for example. Uh, you know, we, yeah, you want to protect your privacy about your movements, but maybe there are moments where you have to give up you know your privacy to stop a you know uh, an infectious global pandemic uh, from spreading um we value free speech but we also value um equality and inclusion and those are intention and that's always been the reality so as a policymaker as a law professor you know uh i i i teach these things i feel them very deeply that we've we always need to have you know some balancing act some uh kind of richness in you know how do we hold all of these values and norms and um kind of future wants uh as you know one uh unified blueprint for for our society um and i see technology as helping with all of that so not disrupting it um so much as allowing us actually to retrieve to maybe to stare at the abyss as you called it yeah. in actually more sophisticated ways so um one thing is that we actually can know so much more with mm. technology about the root causes of inequities um we can see them you know the data gives us so much more information so i start the book actually with describing some um you know, new insights that that happen from just having um, machine learning, um, you know, put on um, data from platforms like scraping um, different um, data that that is uh, on platforms like eBay or or Airbnb, and just kind of seeing it in an illuminating way. Like we we kind of have a sense that you know some platform design will uh, create less gender equality or more inequities uh um more racial bias or less and and we can see this we can study this in so much you know more um consistent you know robust ways than than we've ever uh, been able to before and so we we can see it we can study it we can detect um and and then we can actually improve and so uh, you know, kind of putting together that, you know, call for staring at the abyss, which I love the, the way that you described it with the fact that we have now much more of the capability to do that. Um, mm. With my call of, you know, don't always privilege privacy because we need that data to actually com combat things that we don't like um, and to improve our algorithms to become more accurate. We, we don't recognize that tension in and of itself um, often enough that you know, there's when you look at uh, the EU uh, policies on privacy, like GPR and um, their EU AI draft, and, and we look at uh, policies before Congress, there's that kind of like double um, framing of um, we need to slow down automation because it's inaccurate and, and um, biased and we should have a, a human on the loop always. Um, and also we need more privacy and data minimization. And you know, the, there's there's that kind of link between them. You know, the more data we have, the more accurate our algorithms become. And we need to recognize that and we need to talk about that too. And it seems like in a world that is obviously becoming increasingly complex because of technology, if we don't have some data to track that complexity, we're gonna probably get left behind. There's gonna be a chasm that forms between our understanding and uh, the complexity of the world, I would think. 
Exactly. And, and, but, but so much good also to celebrate. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, again, one of the, the kind of pleasures of researching in this field and, and writing the equality machine has been finding so much to celebrate, like, um, you know, um, advancements in AI that is tackling climate change and environmental uh, issues and and health we talked about and uh, endangered species and um, like uh, poverty and poverty alleviation and um, ag tech agricultural you know uh, advances uh, for uh, around the world and so there it's actually you know again we there's something about like you you called it cynicism that maybe just in in terms of human temperament and sometimes the media they want to report kind of all the wrongs uh, more much more frequently than um, the goods and I think this is a moment where people are thirsty to actually learn much more yeah. about all the good and and that again it's kind of a, a virtuous cycle where the more we yeah. talk about the the potential and the good I think that more people will be um, inclined to you know to be part of that yeah absolutely well i know we're coming up on time here and unfortunately we haven't been able to get into all that good that you talked about i mean there's so much here that you do that that there's a lot of topics and tangents that i think we've been able to explore but with these last few minutes i guess that we have do you have any closing thoughts or or ideas that you'd like to just share let people know about the book anything at all that you'd like to talk about well, I, I love um, your podcast and I love all the projects. Um, and so I'm, I'm eager to hear from listeners about it's kind of like, you know, uh, the book is a, a blueprint and also a call for, you know, just um, more of a conversation. And so uh, you can connect with me on, you know, all social media platforms, uh, Orly Lobel and LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter um, and the rest of them. And yeah, I would uh, look forward to hearing more thoughts and reactions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Orly, uh, I really do appreciate your time and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure.